we can make a very good prediction as to how many 69-year-olds will be alive in the United States next year. You just look at this year's 68-year-olds and do a mortality adjustment. You know, next year's productivity growth is anyone's guess. Welcome back to Bloomberg Benchmark, a podcast about the global economy. It is Thursday, March 3rd. I'm Tori Stillwell, an economics reporter with Bloomberg News in D.C., and I am joined by my co-host Dan Moss, our executive editor for International Economics in New York. Hey, Dan. Morning. This week, we are talking about a topic that's pretty near and dear to our hearts as economics reporters, and that is potential growth. Potential growth is essentially the speed limit of our economy. It's an especially great time to talk about this because, given the election, we're hearing a lot of promises from candidates about growth. My plan can save us this many billions of dollars, create X jobs, stimulate Y growth. That's right. Donald Trump has said that his tax cutting could boost GDP growth to as high as 6% before Jeb Bush dropped out. His plan promised at least 4% growth. And Bernie Sanders' campaign has touted an analysis that says his expansion plans could boost economic growth to around 5%. And all this sounds leaps and bounds better than the 2.1% annual pace that we've averaged during the six full years of the recovery. The thing is, these these candidates' growth plans are also at odds with what we keep hearing from economists, which is that potential growth is really closer to 2%. And according to them, that's about as fast as we can really grow, which would make all these political promises pretty hard to keep. So we wanted a guest to help us navigate this. We're going to walk through potential growth, how it's calculated, what it looks like, and how it compares to the past. We also want to talk about the implications for American society and policymaking, given that much of what we've come to associate with the US, a generous safety net, the American dream, was created at a time when we appeared to be growing much faster. So without further ado, let's introduce our guest. It seems like he's worked everywhere, from Brookings to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, the World Bank, the National Economic Council. Right now, he works down the street from us in the Executive Office Building, where he is chairman of President Barack Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. And once upon a time, he used to hang out regularly with Matt Damon, his freshman roommate at Harvard. Jason Furman, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. But before we get into the heavy stuff, do you get much time for movies these days? I get some time for movies. I certainly love The Martian. Wouldn't have missed it. <laughs> so, Jason, what exactly is the CEA for some of our listeners who may not know? You know, what do you do? What's your day-to-day like? Uh, the Council of Economic Advisors was created 70 years ago, and it is an institution that in many ways is unique in the world. Um, I report directly to the president. I regularly send him memos and advise him personally on the full spectrum of economic issues from the more macroeconomic questions of the trajectory of the economy that we're going to be talking about today to you know more microeconomic issues like overtime regulations and labor or technology policy or um, health care. Does that mean you see the president every day? You send him texts? How does it break down? We send him at least one memo um, a day. We have a standing daily update for him in writing. We also give him memos interpreting economic data before it's released, and we do that a couple times a week, and then see him uh, pretty regularly as well to discuss economic issues. And does he call you up and say, hey, Jason, 
I think your analysis of the monthly trade balance is flawed in paragraph two. <laughs> How does it work? He is a careful reader, and when you see him, he'll bring up something you wrote about a week ago and want to talk to you about it, engage with it. He certainly wouldn't be shy if he did see a mistake in paragraph two, and if there had been one, he'd probably catch it. But uh, we, we try to be pretty careful. Well, let's uh, get to our topic at hand for the day, which is potential GDP. And I think a quick definition of it is it's essentially the pace at which the economy can expand in the long run without generating faster inflation and while keeping unemployment steady. So I've always heard the rule of thumb for it is growth in labor productivity plus growth in the labor force equals potential growth. Is that about right. Uh, that is about right. There's yeah. one or two technical measurement issues that intervene, but for the most part, output per worker times workers equals output. So if you look at the growth of output per worker, that's productivity growth. The growth of workers, you know, add those two growth rates together, you get potential. Great. And so let's talk about sort of where economists have pegged potential growth, um, where you have it pegged. And I'll, and I'll also mention some others because CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, puts it at around 2%. And actually, I saw a Morgan Stanley note not too long ago that put it at 1.5%, which is compared to the, the growth rates that we've been seeing recently, a, a good deal lower. So where do you see it? If you didn't undertake any public policies at all, and you continued on the track we're going, we would expect potential growth to be about uh, the same 2.0% that the Congressional Budget Office sees it at. But public policies can make a difference. And we estimate that incorporating a number, but not all of the policies the president has proposed, would get that potential growth rate up to 2.3%, both by increasing labor force growth and by increasing productivity growth. And how does this compare with previous decades? How are we doing right now, relatively speaking? The big difference between you know, what we see going forward and what we've seen over the last 60 years is the labor force growth. And labor force growth over the next decade will be considerably slower than it was over the last 60 years. And that's for two reasons. The first is that the baby boom is turning into a retirement boom as people reach 65, 70, 75, the baby boomers, and they retire. So that demographic wave which had propelled us forward is now moving in reverse. The second thing is, from the end of World War II until around the late 1990s, there was a big influx of women into the workforce. Uh, percentage of women working went from less than a third to um, considerably higher than that. That influx has leveled off since the late 1990s. So in the absence of the baby boomers and an influx of women, we would expect to see slowing labor force going forward. I'm also kind of curious uh, about the productivity side of this, too. We've, we've had a show on productivity, as some of our listeners may remember. How does that play a role into potential growth as well? Right. Productivity is much more uncertain. And so when you look at differences like between Morgan Stanley, who you talked about, um, they're at the bottom end of potential these days. Goldman Sachs is estimating 1.75, CBO 2.0. Most of the difference between those numbers is differences in projections of productivity growth. 
productivity growth is really hard to predict. We are we can make a very good prediction as to how many 69-year-olds will be alive in the United States next year. You just look at this year's 68-year-olds and do a mortality adjustment. You know, next year's productivity growth is anyone's guess. You're essentially and, trying to predict an innovation, right? Yeah, exactly. And how do you predict a new idea that someone doesn't have today? how many of them they're going to have five years from now. And there's no natural law of economics that says the rate of new idea growth is, has to be 1% a year or 2% a year or 3% a year. There's just nothing that tells you, you know, what it has to be. So what people do is generally they take averages over the past. And the big question is, should you look at just the last five years, the last 10 years, the last 50 years? I personally think the further back you go, the more accurate a projection you get for the future because it's very noisy, it bounces around a lot, and you don't want to place too much weight on any small number of years. And how did the recession affect potential growth? I think the recession took a real bite out of potential because it was a period when um, it resulted in less business investment. It resulted in less research and development. And so I think that lowers your potential growth rate. And that's an important question. I mean, in theory and economics, potential growth rate is supply, and that tells you how much you can grow. And then recessions are all about demand. They tell you how much of your potential you use. I think in reality, there's a little bit more of a causal arrows running both directions, that demand affects supply and supply um, affects demand. You're talking about pretty fundamental long-term forces here, Jason. Given that, why do all these politicians say we should be doing better, we should be doing more? I mean, some of the trends you've described transcend any one four-year term. Um, Absolutely. Look, and we should be doing everything we can to do better. And that's why you know, we're trying to expand trade, invest in infrastructure, have more research, get more people into the workforce, and reform our business tax system. So there's a lot of things we can do. Um, the issue is when you look at estimates of those things, they tend to, each one of them, add a couple tenths at most. And that couple tenths is spread out often over a whole decade. So there's no magic bullet, nothing that's going to completely change this number. But if you do a lot of things and you do them right, you can certainly budget up in the right direction. So then why do we have a situation where we have politicians promising us so much so much better growth. Um, you know, is it is it possible that President Obama just hasn't been trying hard enough to get growth going faster? I mean, sort of the the results we're getting from the early primary states seem to be indicating that voters think that we can do better, and they are willing to believe politicians who are promising us growth that's in many cases double what we're seeing now. Um, so, it, can we can we do six percent? Can we do five percent? We, can, we certainly should be trying to do as good as we possibly can, and we can certainly do better than 2.0%, but there's a real limit to what uh, many of these policies would do. And let me give you an example. President Bush formed a tax reform commission, and they came out with a really thoughtful, you know, well-thought-out plan. You know, it had its pluses and minuses, but it was a well-thought-out, really comprehensive plan. 
And then President Bush's Treasury Department estimated what it would do to the growth rate, and they said it would add less than one-tenth of one percent to the growth rate each year. Now, might still be worth doing. Um, I'd take anything that adds a tenth to our growth rate a year, but you know, a tax plan like that added less than a tenth of a percent. If you have a tax plan that adds trillions of dollars to the deficit, that's not going to add to our growth. That's going to subtract from our growth because the cost of those deficits is going to outweigh any benefit that you know the tax reform itself might have had. So the CEA, the team that you lead, projects 2.3% potential growth over the next 10 years, correct? Correct. And that's incorporating um, the effect of most of the policies proposed by the president. Right. How likely is it that all of those policies come to pass? And is this the problem with making projections over such a long period of time? Well, our job is to say, if we did this, what would happen? And this underlies the budget, and so it fits together as a coherent whole. Um, so it's a conditional forecast, as opposed to trying to, you know, saying if blank happens, then what will be the result, as opposed to unconditional. We basically say as well that if you didn't do any of these policies, we didn't reform our business tax system, we didn't liberalize trade, we didn't invest in infrastructure, we'd have a 2.0% growth rate. And I think that 2.0 is conceptually comparable to some of the numbers you had cited, the Morgan Stanley and the CBO, who I think are generally not assuming that all of those policies are coming to pass. So, Jason, it is an election year, so I feel like I have to ask this question. You know, what would you say to conservatives or just general skeptics out there who may have a hard time trusting economists working for a Democratic president who would argue maybe this potential GDP number is being lowballed to make the current growth rate sound better? No. We do a very rigorous job at the Council of Economic Advisors. You can look at the economic report of the president, which we put out last week. And chapter two gives a detailed accounting. We have you know, 10 different lines, each of which we estimate separately, that combine together for that estimate of potential. So it's something we do very rigorously. And we also benchmark and compare ourselves to other forecasters to make sure we're not you know, way out of line. We have this idea of the American dream, and even people like me who were born outside the United States have heard about the American <laughs> dream. The idea that the US was leading the world in the pace of growth, and the idea that if you come to the United States, or even if you're born here, you work hard, you can get along. Now, there's been this narrative uh, that that's all dead. How does that fit in with what we've been talking about today? I don't think that dream is dead at all. Um, I think the future generations are going to have much better living standards than we have today. Productivity growth is the important thing to look at because that's how much output per hour is growing. If the population isn't growing as quickly in the future, you don't actually need as much economic growth for people to be better off. It's really how much you're getting per person. The United States is still among the strongest growth rates of any of the advanced economies, the fastest productivity growth of any of the major advanced economies, and there's a lot more we can do to strengthen that growth going forward. So I don't think any of this is a reason for despair, but there are certain demographic facts. 
The baby boomers were a tremendous force in the economy. They're not going to be going forward, so we're going to need to find new forces in the economy. That's why immigration reform, for example, could be so important economically. I mean, is it a situation then where we as American people need to adjust our beliefs uh, on on what growth looks like and, and what constitutes good growth in order to better align with potential? Because I think the sense that I get from just looking at reports from the campaign trail is that people still continue to believe we can do much faster. And perhaps it's a situation where you have people benchmarking off of the past for the future. Um, Maybe, maybe that's not the case. Maybe we don't need a realignment. What do you think? Look, I think we should be trying to do as well as we possibly can. We shouldn't just accept reality and take it as given. We should be trying to reshape it. But we also can't be unrealistic about how you're reshaping it. So if you think you're getting a growth rate of 4, 5, 6, 7%, um, you're going to end up not getting that growth rate and having a much larger budget deficit than you've projected. That budget deficit will then further hurt your growth rate, and you'll be in a in a negative spiral. So I think it's really important to be you know, honest and realistic while aspiring um, to strengthen the economy as much as you possibly can. Tori, I wonder whether it's a question of adjusting our beliefs or adjusting the context in which we hold our beliefs. What do you mean? Well, to come back to something that Jason said earlier, and I was in Europe the week before last. Eurozone economic growth, anemic, that's probably a little unfair, but not too wide of the mark. Japan, in and out of recession. China, not hitting it out of the park the way they did for much of the past two decades. So, you know, maybe this isn't such a terrible place to be. I mean, one thing that is worth noting is that at several points, uh, since this expansion began in 2009, people have predicted a double dip. It hasn't come to pass. Jason, what do you think? I might take you one further and say um, America's a great place uh, to be and because we really do have um, a lot of innovation here. And that is resulting right now in wage gains for workers are two and a half percent a year. That's the strongest it's been since the financial crisis. You see people at levels of optimism that you know reached last year that we hadn't seen since 2004. And there's a lot to be you know, optimistic about. What about our entitlement programs given potential GDP and and current GDP growth. Um, How does what we're facing in terms of just how fast the economy can expand affect how we should look at those programs? Yeah. If you're looking at the budget balance over, let's say, the next 25 years, the potential growth rate is an important variable. The higher that potential growth rate is, the better our budget balance um, will be. And so that's another reason why it's important to be really realistic. So you're honestly facing what the challenges are. We have a challenge that I would say is, you know, a moderate challenge. We've done a lot to bring down the growth rate of health costs. We have higher tax rates on high income households. We've brought down some other forms of spending. So the deficit is not as big as it looked seven years ago, but certainly um, we have one, and that's in part you know, a function of these potential growth rates that we've been discussing. 
I wonder whether the worst thing about the 90s, Jason, was that they actually happened. You know, the 90s was a, was a great decade. I love dec- the 90s. I was uh, born in the 90s. Uh, the, the 90s were, were a great decade. And part of that was things like the baby boomers reaching their peak working years. Women still, you know, entering the workforce. So the women's labor force participation rate was rising. And that happened at the same time that there was a burst of innovation. And all of those things came together. Some of those things, like the baby boomers, we're not going to get again. But, you know, the innovation, there's no reason why we can't have another wave of it in the future. I just wonder whether it's shaped people's expectations of what's acceptable when really what you're saying is it was an exceptional time, not a regular time. Yeah, and I think that's true of of all of the past decades. I mean, you don't want to just... Look, look at the United States at different times, or frankly, even the United States compared to other economies. Whenever I compare our growth rate to other countries, I like to look at it per working age population. And so Japan has a lower working age population growth, so they don't need as high a growth rate um, as we have. So, um, yeah, so you don't want to just naively compare numbers over different periods. You want to make sure you're adjusting at the very least for demography. Okay, well, before we wrap up, I have to know one thing. I'm an economic indicators reporter, so I have to know what your favorite economic indicator is. I like um, looking, I mean, I, I hate to say it, the jobs report and the establishment number is the single most accurate number uh, every month. So that payrolls number, that X number the, of The jobs. payroll number. But in the GDP report, I love looking at what we call private domestic final purchases, which is the sum of consumption and fixed investment, which I think is the most inertial part of GDP and gives you the best prediction as to what GDP is going to be going forward. All right. That's good to know. I'll write that one down. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Jason. It was great to have you. Great talking to you. And thanks to you all for listening to Bloomberg Benchmark. We'll be back next week. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, and Google Play. While you're there, you can take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And do let us know what you thought of the show. Our guest, Jason, is on Twitter at, at CEA Chair, and you can reach the rest of us at, at Daniel Moss DC and at Tori Stillwell. See you next week.